I'm always really appreciative of our teachers that work with the kiddos and help manage those. It just doesn't work as well without great teachers. So thank you, Leslie. Thanks, Debbie. Thanks to Joanna, Ruth, uh, Sarah, and all the other children's volunteers. Uh, I think Lisa and Ashley, you help too, right? You go down. Uh, Caleb. Yeah, sorry, Caleb. So thank you all very much. So last week, I, I don't know that it's happened before. I didn't make it through the entire plan for my sermon. It wasn't even close. I've had that happen before, and then I'll just, okay, I'll skip over a few of the thoughts I had. Last week, I wasn't even close. Uh, so I was like, all right, we'll go another week into it, um, considering Luke 5. So I had three points, authority, hardness, and family. And the first is a continuation of a common theme in Luke chapter 5. If you have scriptures, Luke chapter 5 would be a good, great place to turn. And we talked about authority before, and Ken has looked at healing physically and the, the Christ authority there. Um, he's really establishing his authority, and it's challenging one particular authority in this time and place, which we'll look at in a moment. Um, through that, we focused on physical healing last week, which is really exciting, because any physical healing is something we can pick up with multiple senses, right? And so... God isn't always a God of our physical senses. He does, and he, he certainly can, but he also goes beyond our senses. So anything we do pick up with our senses, I think it gets us really excited, of which physical healing picks up on multiple of those. So uh, we examine uh, scriptures and what it means today to have a perspective of the fact that Jesus can physically heal, therefore God the Father can physically heal, and he's left us with the Holy Spirit that can physically heal today. And we have examples of that in Scripture. If we really wanted to, we could find multiple examples of people around us who've experienced probably supernatural healing. Um, what we do find is that that claim gets thrown out pretty cheaply. You know, Jesus kind of pointed that talk is cheap, but to prove to you that... Uh, that my talk is real. He said, I'll show you something supernatural. So I think we get skeptical pretty fast when we hear people claim it. But really, it's do we believe that God is capable of physical healing, physical authority? And what we do find is, I, I do believe that. It's pretty consistent in Scripture, um, even if he doesn't give it every single time we ask or in the time we ask. It's probably more uh, true to say. James tells us, Hey, if any of you are sick, go to the elders. Let them lay their hands on you and pray for you and anoint your head with oil. And it's saying, like, I think there's a lot to that. Like, are we afraid to do that? Because we're afraid if we actually obey that command, we still won't get healing? Or do we think it's weird to do that? I don't know, but there's stigma to that. It's absolutely. Some of you feel it probably more than others. There's stigma to having people lay their hands on you, touch you. It's very personal. Um, and then anoint your head with oil would seem strange too, right? Because that's not something we do. It's like a mess. Um, and I don't know the significance of it. I don't believe it's um, you get a special type of oil. I think any oil would do from my perspective. It's not magic oil we buy at the 800 telephone number. It, it's more important that it's a step of faith. To like, God says it, so I'm going to do it. Just like when Naaman uh, had the story of like, hey, go dip yourself in that river. And Naaman's like, I have nicer rivers back home. Uh, that, what's special about that water? Well, in fact, nothing special about the water. It's the fact that God's asked us to do it. 
And so that's what I see. God's asked us to, if any of you are sick, go to your church leadership. Let them pray over you. And, you know, Ken and I kind of traded uh, comments this morning. It's like, probably we don't do great at that, of either leading by example or encouraging in that. And, and Andy as well, I'm sure, would admit that. Like, we can do better. So if you, you know, share ailments with us, don't be surprised. We're like, hey, can we pray for you? And you may say no. And I would just ask you, why would you say no to this? Even if it's small. Um, and, and we have lots of examples of how our prayers are interpreted by our Father in Heaven, a good judge. So keep that in mind from last week. Um, also keep in mind that healing is not guaranteed. And that's what Paul gives us a great example of. Paul uh, was, had just a, such a special connection with the Father because of his special conversion experience and his special background that he went from murderous to uh, murderous of Christ followers to being the ultimate uh, example of a Christ follower. And he said he has prayed for healing and it did not come because God didn't hear his prayer or didn't care about his prayer. No, he said God's using it to hold him in a, his humble state that to help him remember daily that Christ is made perfect in us, in our weaknesses, right? And Paul, as much as he's a man who doesn't have many weaknesses, here's one out of his control. I, I point to my side. I don't know, like... He said, thorn, I think of thorn in my side. We don't know what it was, but God did not give Paul, the super apostle, healing. Or at least healing in his time frame he wanted, right? So, what we see and then what Billy finished with was Isaiah chapter 6, um, where we, we get a hint of why isn't there more healing and peace in our world today? And Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, it's something that Jesus later quotes to the Pharisees and teachers of the law. Like, if you would turn, I would heal you. But your hearts are hard. You are closed off with your ears and your eyes. You don't want this. If you did actually want it, it would be, you'd be turned and you would be healed. Um, so you can revisit Isaiah chapter 6 um, and, and knowing that really... That ability to, to see God is based on humility. And humility comes with repentance of realizing the castles we built ourselves socially, economically, spiritually, emotionally in us, like they are castles of sand. And until we cast what they said, cast our crowns down and say, I don't have anything good on my own. Until we do that, it doesn't look like there is a path to healing from God. Now that's to say, if someone gets a scrape and they're not repentant, it won't mend up. That's obviously not true. But as far as deep healing that lasts, I absolutely see that Jesus is calling people not to simply ask for healing. It'll be given to you regardless of anything else. He's wanting people to believe in him. And we'll see what his call to believe in him actually means. Not just of, oh sure, you're the son of God externally outside of me but more like what does that mean internally if you are the son of god what is my own state of my heart and if we desire healing which we all do because as ruth pointed out in sunday school we do have bodies that heal most of the time or kind of and because ultimately these bodies die right and we don't have to be afraid of it it's the truth um, and we the world doesn't have an answer to that yet 
I, I, I listen to some guys, not too closely, but they're like, they're still certain, searching for that fountain of youth. It's kind of been a human journey since the beginning. Like, how can we not die outside of the God who's told us this is how you do not die? And they're searching for it in this world. And yet, and as much as life expectancies have increased, we see that 120-year mark is still pretty intact. Um, I don't think it's magical, 120 years, um, but what we see is God is graciously not allowing humans to exist on forever in our own muck and mire of sin. So here is the second two points then that leads from that physical healing part. Hardness of hearts. And we see it in this story, right? Of, this is Luke chapter 5. When the, we watched the video last week, the paralytic man is laid down. The healing part happens, but there's this other story that's happening simultaneously. Of in the video, it was the Pharisees who'd made their way to the window and are watching this go down, and they are offended because Jesus leads with what? Not get up, take your mat, and go home. What did Jesus lead with in that story when he saw the man? Your sins are forgiven. That is a problem because who is the only one who can forgive sins? God alone. Not God and his priests. Um, the priests were only in charge of like bringing enough sacrifices and putting the people in the right place to receive God's forgiveness. God alone can forgive sins. And so they have a problem with that. It's blasphemous. And so uh, there's something there, though, in that, in that scripture of Luke chapter 5, where that's, they say... Who can forgive sins but God alone? It's actually a really good question. <laughs> and if they actually were asking that with humble hearts, what would have been the answer for them? <laughs> Jesus is God. And so and Jesus didn't even like just leave it there. Like we said, he could have not healed the man and that wouldn't have made him any less the Messiah. But he did. He showed them. But so you will know that I have the power to forgive sins. Take up your mat and walk. At that point, we would all hope, if we were witnessing that, it would have been like, whoa, this is different. This isn't just anybody saying, look what my message is, just with my words. Like, talk can be cheap. And Jesus accounts for that, right? He's like, what's easier to say, uh, your sins are forgiven, or man, take up your mat and go home and walk. And what we recognize there is like, well, Jesus, I think, is saying, both are very easy to say. One can be verified right away, though and therefore show the authority I really have, and that's to see this man who'd been paralyzed for most of his life healed. The other, you can't verify right now. You're going to have to take my word from it, for my word for it. So, what's it going to be? And ultimately, that's what he gave the Pharisees. Uh, here's how the Pharisees are depicted in the Passion of the Christ. The question, though, goes back to, so why, by what basis do you and I judge all other things? Um, there's a whole philosophy about this, the criteria for truth, right? And you see it uh, when Jesus was crucified and he goes to Pilate, you know, in this Greek and Western thinking of what is truth and this philosophy that emerged, you know, in these times, like, oh, what, what, is, what is going on? People asking questions, trying to figure out what's real and what's not. Like, what is the lasting satisfaction when we're all doomed for death anyway. You see that in uh, Solomon's writings and Ecclesiastes. Like, hey, what's the point? 
all of this is just chasing after the wind. Our kids will come after us. They'll die. And it just seems like an endless cycle of pain, death, and chaos here in this world. What's the point? Um, and a lot of, and Pilate said to Jesus when he said, I am the truth, what is truth? Kind of a skeptical answer. So for you, it's the same question. What's your criteria for truth? The reality is most of our criteria for truth that sit right here in Andrew County churches today, our criteria for truth was my family took me to church. That was the criteria. And you were faithful and loyal to family for good reason, and that's not a bad thing. But if you were born into a Muslim family, you would have been faithful to that faith. You would have gone and you would have sat there in your mosque and worshipped in that way. Or Jewish, or any other denomination. Um, that's, that's most people's experience. And if they make a change, the only change they usually make is to stop going, <laughs> is what statistics say today. So that's nothing to be ashamed of. That's a great start for our search for truth, is to trust the people who have got us that far in life. You know, to get a boy to 10 years old, and Hannah's never been exposed to, oh, what do they say about Muhammad or Hinduism? You know, Right now, he's basing off, I know my mom and dad have taken care of me, and they say Christ is the answer. That's his criteria for truth right now, basically for a 10-year-old. We are hoping that we'll show him enough that then he can establish his own criteria for truth outside of what we think. Um, and the same for all of you. Like, If your criteria for truth, remember, is based on Wakefield or Ken or Andy or any other leadership in this congregation, you'll be disappointed because we will fail you. That the criteria for your own truth has to be founded in something bigger than humanity who fails. So what is it, though? Um, and this is where, like, philosophically, you can get so deep, you can go down winding roads. Um, but uh, it's a question we talked about in Sunday school, and I think it's really important that we'd role play out what might happen to you or to someone you love that would change your view of God right now. Because that will help you, I think, see what am I basing my faith on? In the Pharisees' case, their criteria for truth was the law of God and their interpretation of the Old Testament scriptures that led to a restored Israel, a kingdom that was of this world. And so once Jesus came and did not represent the Messiah that they expected, it defied their own criteria for truth. Therefore, he could not be the truth. Now, why they held certain things to be their own criteria for truth? Well, it's probably because they're selfish humans. The one thing we all share in common. That's where I think all of our criteria starts. We're selfish by our nature, right? So the reason I went to church with my mom and dad is because I knew there was pretty big trouble for me if I didn't. So selfishly, I went, and I heard some things and some good stories. You fast forward to when my faith started to really start to manifest itself, like who is Jesus and why is he important to me, as opposed to like, oh, it's tradition, we go to church together. My selfish desires at that point were, Young Life Camp is a lot of fun. <laughs> and I established my criteria for pursuing Jesus because this is an adventure camp and there's pretty girls there. And then my own, like, the person who really transformed me so much and showed me Christ was Sarah. 
And she comes as her own ball of fun, like, right? Like, oh, I get Sarah, and she's teaching me about Christ. And not like, oh, she's showing me Christ, and then she's really pretty. It was totally opposite way around. And that was my criteria. Like, hey, selfishly, I'm laying out what I want. And by God's grace, it was also showing me his grace along the way. But it started selfishly. The Pharisees aren't probably that different from us. So what is the difference between? So they, they were shown, they, show, they were shown in their society, what we understand is that the way for them to be good boys was to do their best in the Torah law and memorize well and pay attention to the rabbis. And those who did well continued. And so that picture, we see the best of the best. Like those were the guys who did other things other young boys couldn't at that time. That is the cream of the crop there. And so what separates us from them? Well, they're probably smarter than us. They probably memorize more than us. They're probably more diligent, more patient, had all these moral characteristics. It's probably better than me. So what separates me from them? I think it's being able to humble myself to what am I basing this on? And do, am I so sure I've got it figured out? We talked a lot as we were going through Romans between this and this. Remember what this represents? The closed fist is issues that are settled, that are we can say this is truth versus what lands in this hand. Of like, this is still, we're still trying to figure out how these things apply in so many areas of our life. And where we get in our fear, we often try to transfer things from these open-handed issues over here to the closed fist because we're afraid, I think, often because we don't know it's true. And it seems a little scary because we we're talking that Jesus is the truth. And so we have to be careful because if we put everything over here, now we're holding on to nothing. We have to select wisely like what we put in this hand. But what we get from Jesus is that claim like, I am the truth. And I will back it up with the power over not only the physical body, but the power over sin itself. And so he finds himself and puts himself here. But the Pharisees couldn't see that. And our danger is that maybe we're taking things from that truth and trying to, say, put them from this hand over here, including physical healing for me or not, uh, including how do I speak to my spouse or how do I um, talk to my neighbor or how do I handle conflict in my life. So this question, though, what is your criteria for truth? If God allowed a child to be taken from your family. You know, I use that example a lot because to me it's one of the most extreme I can think about. Would that change my view of him? Is my criteria for truth based on having healthy, full-life children? I will tell you, it's not. So you do not have to worry about, well, I want you to pray for me, but if something happens to our family, I don't want you to worry about, oh, I wonder if this is rocking Wake's faith. It probably will challenge me in ways I cannot understand right now. However, I believe God is bigger than me raising a healthy children. I believe God is bigger than me having money in my bank account. I believe God is bigger than me living in a country with such freedoms as this. Um, and so that's why, as we come up on another election cycle here at midterms, and there will be another presidential election soon, like sit back and watch it unfold and be entertained. <laughs> um, do, do not let it stretch you out. 
um, because that is not our criteria for whether God is good and authoritative or not. Jesus is the best criteria for truth that we can have. And in that, can he do all things? Absolutely. Has he left, it his, left us his spirit to be able to do anything? Absolutely. But sometimes he works in ways that are still mysterious to us. Right? So, or on timelines that are mysterious to us. So be ready for him to work in unexpected ways. But know that he is, in fact, God. God the Father, come to us through God the Son, with us today through God the Spirit. And this is something they cannot understand. But what would make us different? A soft heart, a humble heart. Now, how do you manufacture that? Well, God says he's the one who can harden and soften hearts. It goes back to like, what's our will versus his will? And it goes back to what I said at the end of the sermon last week. If you don't hit your knees, both figuratively and literally, I would say, to help us in our hearts in front of him and asking, us to hum asking him to humble us, I think it's the best thing we can do. But be ready because a prayer of humility and when hum humility comes, it will be painful. Like, be ready. Humility will be painful. Um, so when you get on your knees, you're asking for the pain to be able to let go of the things that we are rooted in that are, in fact, uh, over here that we should let go of. They are worldly things that are being ripped from us and for the best. So the last point, then, is family. So in Luke chapter 5, as we see, how did the paralytic get in front of Jesus? Hanner, how did the paralytic get in front of Jesus? The paralyzed man, how did he get there? From the roof. And who got him to the roof? Because last I knew, paralyzed man can't get to the roof. His friends. Um, and it's a story I remember was a big part of early on my Young Life experience. Uh, the motivation to like, why be a Young Life leader? Why try to tell high school or middle school kids about Christ? And it used that comparison of like, in this story, there's those four people um, I think it said four. So there's those friends who bring their friend on the mat. They do not ultimately are the object of Jesus' healing. Or even his statement, friend, your sins are forgiven. But they're still a big part of the story, right? And uh, saying they had faith as well. And they're actually the ones whose actions required. The paralytic man, we don't know the conversations like, hey, uh, you guys got to get me there. Or if he was like, nah, it's not worth it. But these, these friends are a part of the story. And what I'd heard is like, well, think of them as young life leaders. The ones who are like, hey, I'm not going to save you, but let me take you and show you someone who can. That, that adds a little bit more to the story than we find in Luke chapter 5. However, I think what, what we do know is this did not happen in isolation, this healing. But there was certainly an element of the community played a role in making the miraculous happen. It's easier to go it alone, right? Because you're not going to intrude on anybody. You won't have to share your mess with or anybody else. You go it alone. It is so much easier. And therefore, we choose it that route often. It takes humility to share your burden, your pain, your mess with someone else. It's embarrassing, humiliating, right? It adds what we think is too much weight to them. They're probably already got enough weight and heavy burdens of their own. Why would I ask them to carry my own? Because Christ has asked us to carry each other's burdens. 
Now, some of us are like, yes, let's carry each other's burden. Everybody, I can help you with your burdens. And for some of you, it's harder to be like, would you help me with mine? Because that takes humility. Um, I think I gave this scripture. Could someone turn to Hebrews chapter 10, 24 through 25? Oh, yeah. You have it? Yeah. I had a girl one week later and she's still ready. Good. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Very good. Um, and that was quoted a lot during the start of the pandemic because we're like, oh, stop meeting together. Like, don't forsake meeting together. I, uh, and we can talk more about what we did wrong or right in those times. But the reality is we do not do this alone. And it gets too hard to do it alone. And the one, the, the, any of the reasons that equal us trying to pursue Christ alone, I think we'd find their roots are ultimately in self-interest, selfishness, as opposed to sharing this burden, this journey, this adventure with one another. And that's where um, we get the words of Scripture, like, we are members of one another. We are a body. Um, if, who, who of here is an ear and gets upset because the ear can do one thing really well, but it can't help us walk. <laughs> the foot can definitely help us walk, but it's terrible at tasting things. You know, and really, like, that's us. You are you. Uniquely you. And you might think your gifts stink, but I would say it's probably selfish thinking. Like that you are created, in fact, uniquely and are a part of just by submitting to this fellowship of a body of which we need as much diversity and parts to go out and, and discover Christ together. So what is it about you that makes you uniquely part of not yourself, but of this body and how the body, the church is now Christ in this world. And so us... It's like the Power Rangers. And anybody's seen that? Like, it's been around in multiple formats for years. And I always loved it. It's like, watch the show, watch the show, until it gets to the point where they finally join their powers together. And I was always wondering, why don't they do that at the beginning? And then all their problems don't even get that bad in the first place. Um, and they form, they form together the super, like, man, and then he battles the other big guy. And it always worked out for the Power Rangers. Why don't we do it from the beginning? Like, when our power, our Captain Planet, another childhood, like when our powers combine, then we have Captain Planet. They each had their own rings and powers. And I think it's all taken from when our powers combine, that, each, that God has graciously given each of us. We are so much more powerful. But the fact that you have to go to someone else in itself is a recognition of, I humbly accept I can't do all things. And that is a fight. That is an assault on our pride. And so to submit to one another is extremely difficult. Um, but we can see in this example how the submission of the paralytic man was easy because he couldn't walk. Our challenge is the fact that we think we can when we can't. It'd be easier sometimes to be paralyzed because then we know we can't. But we're walking around thinking, I can do this. It's like, no, you can't. He's promised us, like, this isn't about you and your own 
good work and diligence. This is about Christ and the Spirit working, and one of the main ways the Spirit is working is through what we're looking at right here. Like, look around. This is the Spirit working, which ultimately leads to a part of the Scripture that I would appreciate someone reading. Luke chapter 5, that we did not cover last week, but will be a good, uh, good way to draw right off of that. And I'm glad um, Ken suggested I go ahead and add this to this teaching. So if someone would read Luke chapter 5, 27 through 32. Oh, fantastic. Nice and loud for me, buddy. So I don't, I don't know why that I didn't like say to Ken last week, like, ah, I should really tie that in to the teaching from the paradox man because it just like brings it all together um, from my point of view of healing, talking about healing the authority of Jesus, talking through the hardness of hearts of thinking, well, I'm not sick. Why would I need to be healed? Um, to ultimately talking about... Um, Jesus' power to give us our healing today. Why wouldn't Jesus give us healing? What does that verse tell us about that? Does Jesus come to everybody? It says he's available to everybody, right? But he actually says, I'm exclusive to one group. Which group is he exclusive to? The sick people. How many of you have encountered a surgeon and you go into the surgeon's office and you're like, hey, great, what are we seeing you here for today? Nope, nothing, I'm fine. Okay, uh, like, is there any symptoms at all? Nope, I'm good. All right, then you're wasting my time in my office. Like, I get paid many dollars per hour um, and you are wasting that. Uh, Jesus says, I have, I have no need to, to heal. A physician doesn't need to heal healthy people. Now, is that saying the Pharisees were healthy? Well, obviously not. He just, he just got after them. But more importantly, I think it's about our point of view. Are we healthy or are we sick? The paralyzed man would have looked cursed by us, right? Both practically, definitely would look cursed by us. Anybody with an intense physical ailment or a mental sickness of, or disease or any, any ailment in their life Looks cursed. Um, it's, it's tough, and we have some examples around here. It's say like, 
I remember when Harper was born and how it was like a shock that she has Down syndrome. And it almost seems like a curse because all of a sudden we have uh, what was going to be a little girl full of life and we imagine her childhood and what she'll grow into. All of a sudden, she has a life expectancy that's much lower than the rest of us. Uh, her heart, they're immediately worried about when, you know, just make sure her heart can stabilize. And it seems like a curse. Um, and as I, you know, we all kind of wrestled with what that meant in the weeks afterward, none more so than Andy and Katie, I'm sure. But I know in my own personal thinking about it as family was thinking through of, I don't know, like how heart-wrenching it is to, if I was the father and had to make sure she is as healthy and well as possible physically. Then I also started thinking about what is the reality for, for someone who does have Down syndrome? It's like, well, in my experience, in my life, they are some of the most joyful people I know, right? Now, I'm not going to say Down syndrome equals joyful person, but I would say, practically speaking, we can understand why maybe a, a more limited understanding of the problems and complexities of our social lives equals more joy. <laughs> and that's something that Harper will handle differently than us in her life, as many others have. That's one example. And, and so, who's cursed? The one who says, whew, I don't have Down syndrome, and I'll develop more normally, and I will be able to feel all the social pressures of social media as a teen and you know, all these other things that we all know and feel heavily, or I'll just be able to be naive to it. Not completely, but mostly of the, oh, great. I have something that's not typical, but it'll let me realize that, all right, I don't need that part of my life. We don't envy the paralyzed man, but his ailment allowed him to be brought before Jesus. Are you eager to declare yourself, I'm fine, I'm healthy, I don't need help? Or are you eager to be like, oh, if this is what sick people get, let me be the first in line to be like, I'm sick. I need it. It's kind of like the kids at school are onto something. Like, I'm sick. Becky, does it happen where you get kids faking sick? Like, because those are the ones who get out of the classes when they're not all that exciting. Like, yep, I'm sick. Sorry. You know. Um, and maybe we can learn something from them. Like, hey, not faking it, but in reality, like, no, I actually, I am sick. I need help. And through being sick, I get access to the physician, the healer. The challenge, though, is I think it's really our sickness goes much deeper than I think we can even fathom. So I know a few ways I'm sick. Um, a few temptations I have. I'm like, I can't believe this is the way my mind works. I think it's really tempting for me to be able to say, all right, so I can put in a list the few things wrong with me that really I need Christ to work on. I've been trying to believe that I'm only seeing the surface, the tip of the iceberg when I consider my sickness and trying to stay connected to the fact that, no, actually, the picture painted in Scripture of me is that I'm far more sick than I could ever imagine, that I, I literally have zero good things in me without Christ. And I think that's a challenge because I think we'll, we'll stick with the things um, that we're aware of and know. It's like, no, we all, we all have darkness to the depths without the light of Christ. It's only dark. We're like the moon with no light of our own, says the song we enjoy. Um, it's the sun bouncing off the moon that actually illuminates it. 
Um, we have no generation of light on our own. But I don't think we really believe that. It's hard to really believe that. So what's our answer? Manufacture? I, I think that's where we hit our knees again. And we plead, like, doctor, heal me. I am truly sick. To start to see ourselves in light of that. We are sick. And that ultimately for sick people, there is the promise of healing. I really enjoy the way the chosen uh, portrays Matthew. Uh, he has, he's on the autism spectrum in the show. And uh, so that was him in the video of the one across the roof uh, who was sitting with the kids. And to that point, he's like really smart and that's why he's a tax collector and everybody hates him because he's a Roman tax collector or works for Rome. Um, but Jesus ultimately challenges his criteria for truth, which in, in, this, in this story, we don't have a lot of background on Matthew besides his tax collector and that, but ultimately Jesus lets him see he's sick too and he comes as a savior for healing and he ends up being a great record of, of the good news in the gospel. So... So all of it together, the authority of Jesus, the, uh, the hardness of hearts that say, I'm healthy, I can do this on my own, and then how in reality, no, we can't do it on our own. It leads us to this body of believers. Like we are in this together. Our faith is dependent on Christ alone, but the tool he's given us now is the church to pursue him together. And that ultimately that leads us hopefully to healing beyond what we could ever imagine. And as I said, after we sang that came to my rescue song, it's healing in big ways. Like, an answer to death? Yes. Why, why wouldn't it come into our lives maybe in some of these smaller ways, right? To handle our annoyances, to handle our fear about cultural events and, and current events, to handle our decisions about, am I spending my time wisely? Am I pursuing vocation the way God intended me to? Why not bring that all? Am I eating the way God wants me to? Am I reading? Am I thinking? Am I singing? Am I... Driving, like why not bring it all to the physician? Every little thing, as well as the big things. And as opposed to uh, what Alistair Begg got at a few weeks ago and calling the first disciples saying like, okay, great, I want you for my spiritual part of my life, my church part of my life, but not in my workplace, not in my bedroom, not in all these places. Like, let's present it all to him and see what the physician can do. Seems pretty worthwhile to me. So let's pray. God, thank you uh, for these scriptures we have, the examples of what Jesus was up to, what he was getting at. Thank you for enough time to slowly consider the perspectives that Jesus brought when he was on earth, as well as those around him, um, both that he granted healing to and those he challenged to say they were far from him. Uh, we, we want anything to happen possible that would humble us enough to not miss your healing, uh, forgiveness of sins, eternal healing, that that's good. And then all of the implications of that here and now, um, we want to trust you with because we see enough to say you are the truth. Uh, criteria for truth of, of love and peace in the depths of our hearts. It's enough for us and we want to pursue it further. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen.